another day, another dollar makes you wonder where your money went. You can scream and you can holler. Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Dictated is almost always from my personal mobile studio, which is my 2006 Jetta Diesel TDI. Uh, folks, today we are going to, uh, during my commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas of about 50 miles, discuss a subject that unlike some subjects we talk about here on the Survival Podcast is not going to be something that in any way I can call fun. I mean, sometimes we talk about things like gardening and to me, gardening might be part of prepping but it's fun. We talk about firearms and should you ever be called to use a firearm in defense of your family, household, yourself, that itself may not be fun but the prep work is kind of uh, entertaining. I mean, a lot of guys like to go out and shoot and prepare and guns are cool and uh, you know they're, they're a guy thing and, you know, camping and outdoors. And all these things are, are things that even though their practical application may not be fun if it's a requirement rather than uh, something we do as a hobby or something we do to train, their day-to-day um, involvement in our lives can be fun. What I'm going to talk about today is certainly not fun because of the serious nature of what it is and the and the honesty honestly the frightening aspect that it can be um, for people and the more informed you get the more you realize there is to be afraid of in a lot of situations um, things that appear to be dangerous things that appear to be scary the more you inform yourself the more you control the less afraid you are that can be true here but in most instances, at least when you first begin to really learn about uh, the threat of pandemic disease across the world and what's going on right now, what we know, and, and more importantly, what we don't know, uh, at first, at least, it's more frightening. And I say this in the beginning of today's show because I do not want to create paranoia or hysteria, though I don't think that most of my audience is the kind of people prone to this. You guys are not the people that went out and taped yourself in a room with plastic and nearly suffocated yourself and your family uh, when it was suggested that duct tape and plastic may be good to have on hand if there were a chemical attack shortly after 9-11. You're not that type of people. Uh, the people that I interact with on the forum, the blog, the email me seem to be a lot more level-headed. That said, I, do, I did want to throw that out there. So I am going to tell you the things that you can do today to help I wouldn't say prevent this, but mitigate this risk for yourself or be in a position to respond to it. So let's just kind of kick it off with with talking about the big thing that's out there that everybody's talking about, which, of course, is bird flu. Uh, The bird flu known as H5N1. And I thought, you know, maybe it would be a good idea for me to tell people exactly what these H's and these N's mean in these flus, because I think most people really don't know. Believe it or not, they stand for uh, proteins. And I may get the pronunciation wrong on one or both of these, but the H stands for hemagglutinin and the N for neuraminidase. Now, these 
2 proteins are important to the flu virus because they're what allows the virus to attach itself to cells within a body of a host, be that you or a turkey or a duck or a chicken or a pig or whatever animal, whatever creature the particular variety of flu attaches to, it is these two proteins that allow and make the capability of that attachment possible. The H side, there are there are 16 known H's, H versions of this protein are hemagglutinins. There are nine N's or neuraminidase. All right, of those, only certain ones have a propensity to do well in attaching to humans. In people, the H is generally one, two, and three. All right. And the N is 1, 2, and has also been found in 3 and 7 to have a propensity for attachment. So this, what's, what's preventing this flu, this H5N1 bird flu, avian flu, from attaching itself and becoming highly infectious in humans is the fact that it's an H5, which is, does not have a high propensity to attach itself in humans. Of course, the N1 does. There's many N1 strains of flu out there. In fact, if you might remember from other shows the big flu, the giant one, the one that killed millions of people, somewhere in the estimate of 50 million people worldwide and a half a million people in the United States was the Spanish flu. That was an H1N1 form of influenza type A. So the N is dangerous, or at least capable, let's put it that way, of highly capable of infection in, in people. Now, I'm not a biologist, but I would surmise that the close contact with animals and the N1 piece of the virus has what has allowed some people to become infected, and the H5 piece of this virus has what up until now has really prevented human-to-human airborne transmission, and that's the big danger is human-to-human airborne transmission. There's another term that's thrown around in you know papers from CDC and things like that that I think a lot of people are also not aware of, and that is clade, C-L-A-D-E, the clade. And, for instance, right now there is a clade 7 of the H5N1 virus that's turned up in uh, China and has killed at least one person. So what the hell does clade mean? Well, a lot of people, I think, are under the illusion that, that, that H5N1 could mutate into H5N3, for instance, and then that is what would allow it to go after humans or, or, or cause another problem. Now, that may be the case, but once that happens, a new clade is formed. A clade is a system of common ancestry. So we're up to at least seven known clades of, of H5N1, and they're all H5N1. They all have those two particular types of proteins. And it's that combined protein strain of the flu that continues to morph and mutate and and do other things. Now here is a reality. It's probably clade 7 billion, alright? The the clade 7 is assigned by the scientists doing this research because what they're saying is, well, the first one we found was one. Right. Well, that was not that long ago. I guess it was five or six, seven years ago that we first started hearing about avian influenza and the potential for human-human transmission. And we had clade one and two and three back then. And uh, but that was what 2002, 2003. And if we're already up to clade seven, that's known. 
how many do you think there were before we got there? The point is, and this is what people need to understand, that the flu and other viruses, other diseases, and other bacterium mutate extremely rapidly. This is why this stuff poses a threat. Now, it is January 13th, I think, today. It's not halfway through the month. What's been going on with bird flu just in 2009? Well, number one, as we said, we've had a clade 7 version of H5N1 show up in China and kill at least one human. There appears to be a cluster of human infection in Viet, uh, Vietnam. Now, the clade of that, is it 1, is it 2, is it 7, is it 6, is it 9? They really don't know yet. They're not sure. Uh, there's been at least one confirmed death of H5N1 influenza in Egypt. Uh, there are certainly some human cases popping up in Cambodia. Uh, there are big poultry outbreaks in India and Bangladesh. So the poultry farms there, the birds are infected and having to be killed off. Uh, they're actually hunting door-to-door for a, a, a perceived human case and a India, and a baby in Hong Kong, get this folks, died of H9N2. Why do I throw that one in there? Because it proves a point. I, as I told you, H generally infecting humans 1, 2, and 3, N generally infecting humans 1, 2, 3, or 7. Now we got an H9N2. Alright, so we got another H out there that's infecting people that's caused death, at least in an infant. And, you know, what, what a grown man have contracted this and died, we don't know, and hopefully we, we won't find out. Right? You just have to kind of grasp the aspect here that things are happening in the microbiological world. These things are mutating, morphing, and changing on an ongoing basis. And just because a story falls out of vogue with the news doesn't mean it went away. What I mean by that is if you look for news about the bird flu and if you look for news about uh, potential pandemic and things like that, you can find plenty of it right now. But if you just plop yourself in front of the TV set, um, watch ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox, what have you, uh, throw the local news channel on, throw the cable news channel on, you're not hearing anywhere near as much about bird flu as we did a few years ago when it first propped its head up. Why? Because the American individual has a problem with arrogance. You may wonder, how do I make the leap to arrogance from a news story? Well, we're going to do a show coming up this month on all this hype around the year 2012. And there's a thread about 2012 in our forum, and, and I've commented on it. I said one of the, the heights of arrogance of humankind is that we actually think that we measure occurrences in a human lifetime in a universe that's trillions of years old, all right, or billions of years old, or hundreds of billions of years old, whatever. I can't remember what the perceived age of the universe is right now, but uh, that's even arrogant to think that we know. But we know that it's it's ancient, and that a human lifetime is not even a snap of the fingers in these timelines. And 2012 is about this alignment of the uh, the our sun with the center of the galaxy, and it's supposed to be wow, it's re- re- really rare. Well, I did a little math, and based on the perceived age of the universe and uh, the cycle, it's happened about a half a million times in the Earth's history. A half a million doesn't sound very rare to me. That's a lot more. Than 
than a lot of other things going around. Well, so what we're saying there is, hey, man, don't th- don't put too much importance on this. But the other side of things is we can reverse that and go, well, in an age of microwaves and television sets and uh, cable channels and phones that can do you know more than computers could do ten years ago. We can go the other way and underestimate things just because they don't happen quickly. And so we heard about this bird flu five, six years ago, and it was going to kill everybody. And maybe we went out and got some Tamiflu and uh, lied to our doctor to get a hold of it and stocked up on vitamin C and and, uh, whatever we thought needed to be done, and none of those really mattered. And uh, we waited for it to happen, and it didn't happen. And, well, this is a non-starter. It's not going to happen. And we think just because in our arrogance that, that five years have gone by, that this threat doesn't exist anymore. We think just because we don't talk about, you know, we talk about when I was in school, the the Cold War was raging, if there's such a term, and uh, the fact that the Russians or us could launch our nuclear missiles any day and wipe everybody out was real and in the minds of people. And nuclear holocaust seemed like a real threat. Well, today most people don't think that way. Yet we still have a lot of missiles. The Russians still have a lot of missiles. The Chinese have a lot of missiles. Indians have at least few nukes. Pakistanis have some nukes. French have some nukes. We've given nukes to the Israelis. Iran's trying to get a hold of some. I mean, the threat's not gone, but our arrogance has allowed us to believe that it's gone. And that is exactly what is going on right now with the potential for a flu pandemic. Just because nothing majored, because the big thing hasn't hit yet, we're ignoring it. Hurricane Katrina, everybody told people in uh, New Orleans, one day if a big hurricane hits, this place is going to be underwater. It's below sea level. It's going to happen. It's not if, it's when. And people stood there in New Orleans and said, I'm 80 years old, and they've been telling me that since I was a little kid. It ain't never happened. And that's the arrogance. And that's the arrogance I've gotten, honestly, in emails from folks. I got an email from one guy, Jack, I'm 65 years old. I've heard you talk about this blue pandemic stuff and say it's not if, it's when. They told us that my whole life and I never saw it. Well, if you're really 65, you saw two of them. One in the 50s and one in the 60s. You lived through them. One killed, I believe, about 50 to 70,000 people and the other killed about 30,000 people. That was just in the United States. But since it wasn't your nephew or niece or cousin or brother or dad or mom or son or daughter... You didn't really notice. And then just a little bit before you were born, Mr. 65 years old, we had that Spanish flu, 1918. Our soldiers brought back from World War I and killed a half a million people in the United States. And if you'd have been around during that, you would remember it. And 1918 is less than 100 years ago. But yet our arrogance allows us to think that five years... It's a significant period of time. And that arrogance cuts both ways because the reality is in the microbiological world, this thing has done all types of things in those five years. And then the other question is, what else is out there? And the reality of all this is we don't know. As I mentioned, there was an an H9N3 flu that no one had really been thinking about. And guess what? We call H5N1 the bird flu. Well, this H9 thing is actually avian in origin as well. So there's a lot of bird flus. 
And I think it's time that we start to evaluate a few things that no one's evaluating. One is that these avian flus right now do not kill wild birds in large numbers at all. Basically, these wild birds just kind of get a little bit sick, and most of them make a good recovery. When they get into our domesticated fowl, they wipe them out eventually. And you have to ask yourself why. Well, I believe there's two reasons. And again, this is this is me uh, throwing a curveball here, guessing. But I bet you I'm right on this. So that is that one, the wild uh, fowl have developed resistances to these infections over time because they've been exposed to them for eons. We have protected our domesticated fowl as best we can, and thereby reduced their resistance and immunity. And then the other thing is easy when you see a huge flock of birds when they land. They spread out. They stand wherever they want. They crap in one place today, and they fly to a new place tomorrow. They don't sit around in their own feces and peck food out of their own excrement. All right? But... Our domesticated fowl do exactly that. They're fed in the same place every day. They're housed in close quarters, so they spread disease amongst themselves much more quickly than a wild population. Why is this important? Well, it's important because there are quite a few mutations that could occur that no one's talking about. And if they do, just in this one little world of bacteria or virus, it could cause global repercussions that you know no one's even planning for. For instance, what what if this H5N1 virus that's not really killing a lot of wild birds mutates into a particularly deadly strain of the flu? And this particularly deadly strain of the flu actually starts killing off wild birds in massive numbers. And I mean, we don't get infected, they do. Ducks, geese, doves, blackbirds, pigeons, sparrows, cardinals, blue jays, robins. A particular form of the flu lays decimation to the global population of birds. What you will immediately see is a global increase in the population of insects beyond your wildest dreams. What could that do to our food supply? That's even without human infection. The other side of this is a mutation of the virus that no longer kills our domestic fowl. Why would that be bad? Well, if that happens, then it becomes a lot harder for us to figure out that uh, Farmer Kwan's uh, chicken coop has been infected with bird flu because his chickens aren't dying. That gives the virus more time to evolve inside of domestic fowl while it's close to humans. This is what people don't understand about viruses in these clades. In any one sample of virus, there's millions of little viruses there. Millions of them. They replicate so quickly. And what a virus does is it actually attaches to a cell, it infects the cell, and eventually the cell basically explodes and thousands and thousands of little viruses come out of the cell like an egg sac, and they look for a cell to attach to themselves, and they do this over and over and over again. Well, if you could get your hands on a sampling of these, these viruses and actually went through every one of them, odds are, in just about any generation, there's some sort of mutated virus strain in there. Now, the question is, is it adaptable? Is it more 
survivable for the virus to be that way? When the answer is yes, it begins to replicate itself in the host. If it replicates to a high enough number before the host dies and it's exposed to others, that new strain gets a toehold and starts to grow and mutate on its own and reproduce. So basically the virus is fighting a battle on a daily basis, a battle to better overcome its enemy, which is us and all its other hosts, to survive the immune systems that it exists within. And it doesn't have a brain and it doesn't think, but what it has is sure numbers and no fear. It will sacrifice trillions of its own kind to find the one that's better suited to attack you or to attack our chickens or our ducks or a crow. Doesn't matter what its host is. It doesn't think that way. It doesn't give preference. It's an unthinking, unseen enemy with an unlimited number of life cycles. And every time one of those mutations occur, a new threat is born. And then it's only a matter of are we resistant to it or not. And by sheer numbers, sooner or later, something that we're not resistant to comes up. If it's a one in a billion chance, it probably happens every ten years or less. Then it's a matter of does it get anywhere? Does it escape? Well, if this H5N1 adapts to a form that becomes less deadly to our domestic poultry, or if they develop a natural resistance to it over time... What will happen is that virus will get much closer to humans and be sustained a lot longer and have more chance to mutate as people are being exposed to it. So eventually can it mutate into a clade where the H5 protein figures out a way to compensate for the fact that it's not ideally suited for attachment in humans. Then once that happens, is that particular form deadly? So you can see there's a lot of ifs and whats in this. That's why I keep bringing up the point about the numbers and about the unthinking enemy. So that you understand that this is why it hasn't happened yet because it takes so many. It's like trying to win the lottery. All right? It, it, it seems almost impossible, but if you were buying 10 million lottery tickets every time, you might go broke really, really fast, but if you kept doing it sooner or later, you're going to win the lottery. The way to prove that is that once a week or once every other week or once a month, if your state has a lottery, somebody wins it. You add up all the tickets that were purchased, that was how many it took to win. And the viruses don't have to spend money to play. They just have to split, divide, and continue. That's all they have to do, and they've been doing it long before we were here. So what do we do about all this? Well, we do the things that we talk about every day. We make sure that we have food and water stored. We make sure that we keep our debt down so that we aren't ever put into a position where if I don't go to work today, I can't pay the bills on Friday. So even though I know that I shouldn't go to work today because they're not quarantining us yet, but this disease is starting to pop up in places, you can make a decision that, you know what, I'm going to wait this out. And I hear a lot of people in, in, in forums and in just side discussions in the survivalist community discuss things like, do you bug in or do you bug out? And uh, if there could be a case made for the ideal scenario to be bugging out to a remote location from, it could be infectious disease. See, most infectious disease isn't going to just like, okay, I'm going to cough, <laughs> right? And then the, my cough is going to go outside of the window of my car. 
carrying whatever I'm infected with, and I'm in Dallas and you're sitting down in Austin, and it's just going to float through the air magically until it lands on you in Austin. Generally, I have to come into contact with somebody at a reasonable distance uh, where that virus gets an opportunity to infect a host before it goes dormant and or dies. So the best course of action that a person could take, if it's available to them, is to take themselves and their non-infected family members out to a remote location and wait it out. Is that 100% guarantee that they won't get infected? No, but it sure increases the likelihood that they won't get infected. And not to allow contact with anybody until the reasonable expectation of the threat is passed. And if you think about a lot of the doomsday scenarios, some of the tinfoil hat scenarios, you know, if a meteor hit the planet bugging out to your remote location, probably ain't going to help. If uh, the the uh, the Nazi troops really didn't launch, you know, march to round up everybody, I'll find you. If you know we're having a famine and you don't have food, you don't have food no matter where you go. And uh, people would probably come looking for the remote locations. I'm not a big believer in the roving hordes theory, but I do think that if you have food and other people don't, sooner or later you're going to have to defend your food. In a pandemic situation, an infectious disease situation, what, the, you know, what would happen is that the government would declare quarantine. They would have to. And whether you agree with it or not doesn't matter. You're going to do it. And, and honestly, their hands are tied. It is the only recourse with a major infectious disease outbreak that anybody can take is to lock everybody down where they are. And then they're going to have to figure out how to get supplies and food to some people at certain times to try to keep people from going nuts. But you won't see a lot of looters because to loot is to risk infection. So in this scenario, which is, you know, not, I wouldn't say it's highly probable, but it's probable. It's something we need to be more afraid of than most of the things that we talk about and even some of the things that we glamorize with Hollywood aspects in the survivalist community. This is really not an if. This is a, it's a when scenario. Now, the arrogance comes that we'll go, well, if it hasn't happened in 100 years, and aren't we tired of waiting on this? I hope it doesn't happen in my lifetime, folks, but 100 years again... It's not the snap of a fingers in the way that we measure time in our universe. It's a very insignificant period of time, but yet it only takes one good day for the virus. One good day for a bacteria, because flu is not the only threat. Bacterial and viral, and in some ways... Virals worse, and in some ways, bacterials worse. Can't really. I'm not going to doctor, and I'm not going to try to go into that deep today. But I'll tell you that there are there are aspects of both that are quite frightening. But all of these things hinge upon the ability to make contact, human to human contact. Without that. They're kind of stopped in their tracks unless they end up infecting the food supplier or the water supplier or something like that. Again, though, I want to reemphasize the importance of practical preparation with some other things that people aren't thinking of. Right now, we're seeing major deaths among the honeybees. 
We're seeing entire colonies of honeybees wiped out. Why does that matter? Well, because if you eat food, and I happen to like food, um, <laughs> it's kind of necessary for our survival. A lot of it gets to become food through the fact that bees pollinate flowers, which have seeds which become fruits and, and become vegetables and become something we can actually consume. And without the honeybees, a lot of the agricultural crops in the world cannot succeed. Well, what do they think is killing the bees? Well, one theory, and it is a theory because we're really not sure yet, uh, is that there's a virus. And there are some known viruses that infect bees. And they, this theory has some legs. I mean, they found some bees that they, you know, this hive was wiped out by this virus. So, what if the bees have a pandemic? You know, surely some other form of pollinating insect will take over in time. Uh, surely some form of bee will survive and begin the evolution process all over again and eventually spread out across the globe. But this all comes back to human arrogance. That process might take a couple hundred years, and in a couple hundred years... A combination of our own disease and famine and our own stupidity could end up wiping us out or wiping our population down to you know a level that would have to be considered quite minuscule compared to where it is today. And that could be, you know, the whole cycle is, is the bees enough by themselves? Could we figure out ways to compensate for the fact that they're not here through bioengineered seeds, of all things? Sure, we'd figure something out in time, but how many people would die first? And while we're in that weakened state, let's say that this occurred during a down economy like we have right now, with, you know, it already had 7, 8% of the population without work, already had food prices escalating. You know, all of these things combine to a threat. And and we just have to keep, again, everything in perspective and think about practicality. And again, I think there there is no better scenario for a remote bug allocation, or if you happen to live in kind of a remote location right now, bugging into that location um, to take control of the situation. Odds are that just about any infectious disease would run its course in, in about six months from being a, a real risk to kind of coming back down. It doesn't mean it wouldn't come back around the next year, but if you could kind of hang out somewhere for six months, you'd be all right. So, you know, we can't do a whole episode on bug out locations right now, but in an ideal situation, if you can afford and have the means for a bug out location, or if you live in a location permanently, which would be described by people that live in a city, as a bug allocation, having certain things on hand would allow you to pretty much skate through this. And that would be six months supply of food, some continuing supply of water, one way or another to obtain that, um, and the ability to provide yourself with you know, some kind of backup redundancy for electricity, a generator, something like that, for critical needs. Uh, if, if things went crazy and you know, like the electrical grid went down and stuff from this, because it could happen. We have people rioting because they're scared, because they're starving. Um, but if you had all that, you'd be in a pretty good situation. Here's another thing you may want want to think about adding to a bug out location in case you have a pandemic situation. Something that I would have to call a quarantine room. And what do I mean by quarantine room? I mean, look, 
you probably have a heart beating in your chest, and that heart probably makes you care for your fellow man and certain members of your fellow man more than others. These could be family or friends. And it could be the, you know, the, the, the situation where you realize, because you're the one that's paying attention, hey man, this is it. This, this pandemic thing's starting. This is happening. They're already running some quarantines in, let's say, Philadelphia and Los Angeles. I'm in the middle of the country. We haven't been exposed yet, but we have a place to go. We are getting out of here. Taking indefinite leave from work. I, I'm protecting my family. I see the writing on the wall, and I'm going to do this. Or I'm going to talk to them. And if I can work remotely, great. If I can't, too bad. i got to take care of my family first. And you might tell your brother-in-law or your sister-in-law or your sister or your brother or your best friend, man, this is it. You need to get, I've got room, I've got space, I'll take you in. Get you, get the kids, pack up, let's get the hell out of here. And they might say, bro, I I can't do it right now. I'm not, you know, they're telling us it's going to be okay. You scream at the top of your lungs and, and three weeks later, you get a phone call. Hey, man, um... Yeah, this is getting really scary now. We want to come be with y'all. The problem is you don't know if they've been infected. So the only way that I would, you know, allow that is through some sort of, you know, localized quarantine process. Now this could be as simple as you set up a little travel trailer with two weeks supply of food in it, right, and a supply of water to it. And you say, look, when you get to the property, take your vehicle, turn to the right, park on the back side of the lot, unload your stuff, the trailer will be empty. We've wiped everything down. It's as clean as possible. Go in there. We don't want to see you. We don't want to talk to you. We don't want to breathe the same air you breathe. We will let you in, but you're living there for two weeks or three, depending on the gestation period of the disease, so we are sure that you and everybody with you is free of contamination with this disease. At that point, we'll allow you into the rest of the, you know, the, the facility. That might be, and that might sound crazy, but I got to tell you this: if a friend or a relative that I was willing to take in from Dallas contacted me. They'd be living in a tent for three or four weeks right now because I don't have a travel trailer for them right now. They're not making contact with me or the people that went there with me in advance. Now, I'm not saying this is going to happen, obviously, right? I'm saying in that scenario, that is the survival scenario like nothing else that we, you know, really can prepare for. There's practical things that can be done, and that's just one of them. Because you don't know if they've been infected. You don't know if they've been infected on the way up there, right? Or the way out to you or down to you, whatever direction they are away from you. If they're coming 500 miles, do they carry reserve fuel? Probably not. Don't carry reserve fuel 500-mile trip. You're getting gas once, twice, right? Maybe the kid wants to run in and grab a Slurpee, right? And if the person's not a prepper, doesn't understand the threat, Oh, it's okay. It's okay. We're just we're getting away from it now, right? You can't rely. A disease does not have any prejudice. It doesn't care how smart or dumb you are. It doesn't care what race you are. It doesn't care what sex you are. A disease infects because that's what it does. That's its purpose. That's its only function is to infect and reproduce and mutate and continue to infect. You can't take chances. So that's just something I thought I'd throw out there at the end. In the end, though, it all goes back to practical preparation. It is one of the most imminent 
threats out there. It's one of the most, uh, it's, it's the most true out of just about any threat out there that's not if, it's when. It's a, a real probability of something you could see in a single human lifetime. There's been three pretty big ones in this current generation. The last people from 1918 are just getting old enough, to, you know, the Centurion uh, group is just starting to kind of die off. So, going one human lifetime, we've had 1918, the one in the 50s, and the one in the 60s. Com- combined global death t- toll in the tens of millions. And again, that Spanish flu strain was an H1N1 strain. It's all a matter of mutation. And it's just flu. There's other diseases out there. In fact, I've just watched a special. I'm going to have to rewatch it and do some stuff on this. That uh, There's some theories out there that the dinosaurs didn't die from that meteor. That it was a combination of a meteor, a volcanic eruption, and above all, disease and climate change. And those factors together created an extinction scenario. When we look at scenarios for survival, we need to look to the past and say, how do things come together? And disease is one of the big threats. Again, like I said, this is not really a fun show today. When you talk about something like a silent killer like a disease that can take your life or take the life of those who you love, it's not fun. But preparing for it acknowledges the fact, as always, that what you do matters and there's always something you can do. That's part of living a better life. This has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. makes you wonder where your money went. You can scream, and you can holler, it really doesn't matter. Get spent